take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. I know if I'm, I'm you, I'm thinking, well, I'm ready to go home. That was a blessing, and it truly was. Uh, the challenge is uh, really the injunction we're given in the book of Acts, where certainly they prayed, they broke bread together, they worshipped, but they also heard from the apostles' doctrine. So we're going to try to do that uh, Uh, this morning, we're certainly going to uh, reflect on Jesus' words, but we're going to pull it forth into our context here in the uh, church uh, through our understanding of apostolic truth. So that's our, our goal here. So we think in long the term of remembrance, my proposition this morning is, is one that it has a bit of irony to it, or at least is something that we wouldn't necessarily expect. When we drop down into John chapter 15, verse number 13, and we read this axiom, this self-evident truth that Jesus doesn't necessarily author, uh, but rather he employs. So this is a, a truth that is just really intuitive to the human condition. Uh, and we read it here, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. But as we study out the context, we learn that this axiom, this self-evident truth, is employed by Jesus in a very special way for the church. And we'll, we'll see that here in a minute. But this morning, uh, as we look to a passage of Scripture that embodies the very heart of Memorial Day, John 15, 13, uh, we see this verse often quoted in a weekend like this. This weekend, nationally, we stand in the face of such no greater love, if I can put it that way. I serve on the military ministry here, and some of the men who have joined me in that ministry are combat veterans. And I'm told that in combat, it is not necessarily the high ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that motivates a sailor or soldier to things he or she never thought personally possible. Rather, it is the love of brother or sister in arms next to them in the conflict. Perhaps uh, uh, this Medal of Honor recipient puts its best, Lawrence Chamberlain, as he tried to explain the willingness of men to face bullets. He boiled it down to simple manhood, womanhood, the force of discipline, pride, and then he says this, the love and bond of comradeship. It is this longing that all, to that all together get home safely, that motivates so powerfully in the heat of battle. It is this special bond that creates a camaraderie that's so palatable, that lasts a lifetime in veterans' organizations. It explains unthinkable acts of heroism. And in fact, Jesus himself cites this axiom, and we do well to honor those who have fallen in display of such a love. But in our text this morning, this axiom is used to locate unmistakably a focus uh, 
that Jesus desired for his apostles who would be, or his disciples who would become apostles, particularly in his absence. And by extension, a focus for you and for me, as we are the recipients of the apostles' instruction and understanding in the church. In the context, this is Jesus' final week, and his disciples are sensing the impending reality of the cross. Jesus began to prepare them for his absence. All the way back in John chapter 14, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. There's a crisis about to come. You believe in God, believe also in me. In John chapter 14, verse 18, he adds, I promise I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In John chapter 14, verse 25, to, to further his longing that his disciples would be fully assured that even in his absence they would be well cared for, he promises them a helper. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your, to your remembrance all that I have told you. In John chapter 14, verse 27, he again adds, do not let your heart be troubled. But he adds, nor let it be fearful. And in my absence, in John chapter 14, verse 29, he says, I have told you many things that are going to happen before it happens, so that when it happens, you will be fully assured and believe. Jesus longs for us to be fully assured in faith. This is an uncertain time for the disciples they themselves would soon desert Jesus for a time. Soon Jesus would no longer be with them. My friends, faith would no longer be sight. What possible assurances would they have in Jesus' absence? To what could they return to find comfort after Jesus was gone? Jesus makes clear that in his absence, and if you write something down, write this down. Assurance of faith is found in the degree of love believers show to one another. Let me say that again. Assurance of faith in the absence of Jesus, when faith is no longer sight, is found in the degree of love believers show to one another. Three things Jesus points out about love as a means of assurance in this short few little verses. Really, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 17. He gives assurances direction, its setting, and its pattern. First of all, let's look at assurance, uh, the truth that assurance is direction. It's directed to your will. Assurance is directed to the will. And when I say this, I want us to understand that previous to this point in the lifetime of Jesus, it was directed to their sight. We had time, we'd look at Luke chapter, uh, or John chapter 10, verse 25 and 37 and 38, where Jesus implores people to believe in him, if for no other reason to what they had seen him do. He had healed the blind. He had fed 5,000 people. He had done amazing acts. He had done the works of divinity. And he implores them, just 
By virtue of what you have seen, believe in me. We don't have that opportunity today. And probably even more pointedly is Luke chapter 7. Remember as John the Baptist languishes in prison, his head about to be removed because with the authority of Jesus Christ backing, he, he dared to point his finger at the king and reprimand him for an illicit relationship. And the king threw him in prison. As he languished there, he, he began to doubt and he sent some of his followers to Jesus. And they asked him a question, are you truly the Christ? This is what John the Baptist was languishing over in, in prison as he knew his life was short. Are you really Jesus? Are you really the Christ? And Jesus responds, you go back and tell John the Baptist, you see the lame healed, the blind see, miracle after miracle. So in this age, faith was sight. Jesus, Jesus would soon be gone. Assurance in this dispensation is directed to our will, not our sight. We see in verse number 12, he, Jesus says, this is my commandment, my commandment, that you love one another. I command this. In verse number 4, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, plural. And then he sums up all of those plural commandments in verse number 12 into this singular commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. In John chapter 15, verse 10, if you are going to be able to follow this command, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There it is. Assurance is directed to our will. Obeying this command is the functional method whereby Jesus' joy according to verse number 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the verbiage of assurance. Obeying this command is the functional method whereby Jesus' joy takes up residence in us. Fullness of joy, fullness of joy is not sourced in the human condition. You will never experience fullness of joy on your own. Mark it down. You can go and underline verse number 11. You need another source. You need the creator who created you, who knows exactly what will fill you with joy. You need to take his joy upon you. Secondly, obeying this command in the strength of Jesus is the fountainhead that makes our joy full. So that Jesus' joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There it is. And what is that joy? What is this 
functional method. It's learning to love one another as Jesus has commanded us to do. There it is. That's profound. You want more assurance? You want your joy to be filled? Sorry, I can't like pull rabbits out of a hat and claim that Jesus gave me the power to do that. I can't hit you on the forehead and you fall down and you're healed all of a sudden. I can't do that. But what I can implore you to do is get busy loving. Be a lover. Love one another. You will know fullness of joy as you work hard at loving. Oh, there's a paradox, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're going to see that it is hard work. So not only does assurance of faith in Jesus' uh, absence have direction directed to our will, it also has a critical setting. Assurance in Jesus' absence exists in a specific setting. We've already mentioned it. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And it also is in the setting of friends. Verse number 14, you are my friends. So this is the setting. You know, love can be spent on a variety of things. This would be the realm of our senses, what we hear, what we see, what we smell, what we taste, what we feel. Love can be spent there. Love, love can be spent on ideas. If you're, if you're majoring in philosophy, it seems like a lot of kids major in philosophy today. They may be phileo, lover of ideas. It can be spent on ideas. All these loves may be valid, but none of them is the setting where Jesus develops the full assurance of faith that you, in fact, are Jesus's. It is in the setting of loving one another as believers and doing so in a way that Jesus has laid out for us to do. It is in this setting that the supernatural work of Jesus in your life is required and must be employed. Don't think for a minute that you can love this way without Jesus's help. You can not. See, that's why this is the fountainhead of assurance in this dispensation because he's going to ask you to love in this amazing way, and you have no ability to do it. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. You know, one of the most intimate one another relationships is marriage. It stands to reason that this assurance is reflected either positively or negatively in the marriage bond. Feelings of love or frustration are felt with greatest intensity in the marital bond. It truly is either the best of times or the worst of times. It is the very purpose of this relationship to make you more holy. Making us more holy is not the byproduct of perfection in your marriage, but it is the byproduct of loving and serving, even when we think or feel our spouse does not measure up to all that they should be. Assurance of salvation is not found by insisting and making sure your spouse is towing the line. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. You don't need supernatural help to sit there and tell me how terrible your spouse is. That's easy. My wife has an easy job of that, right? <laughs> Laura, you're perfect. I, I, you're, she's perfect. 
Hopefully that's on the recording. Yes. But assurance is found in individually towing the line, sacrificially in obedience to this wonderful command to love one another regardless. Regardless. Did I say yes? Regardless of our spouse. A second aspect of this setting, and and really the engine of how, how we begin to go about doing that, is it's in the context of friends. Do you see that? Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And ironically, Jesus points up the idea, not of the laying down of the life, although he's going to do that infinitely and and eternally. But the emphasis and the focus is not on that aspect of that statement. It's on the friends. It's on this brand new relationship that the church in this dispensation, enjoys that faith communities before hasn't in the same way. We are no longer slaves or servants, but friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, verse 15. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you my friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you to do what? There it is. That's our bookend. So we're no longer slaves and servants, but friends. What is Jesus' proof of that? Well, here's his proof. What do you do with a friend? You tell everything to your friend. Right? Right? Friendship, intimate knowledge of one another as friends doesn't inhibit communication. It releases it. And he says here, how do you know you're my friends? Because I've told you everything. Everything that I have heard from the Father, I have told you. He has made it all known to us. In contrast, God called the Old Testament prophets my servants. And really there's a play here, slaves, servants. The Greek word there is the same and can have a little bit of different nuance. But the point is, if we turn over to 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12, we would read these words. These prophets that prophesied as to salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. My friends, you know it all. You're no longer the servant of Jesus like the Old Testament prophets who prophesied these things and kind of wondered about all the details. You know the details. You know it all. You, my friend, are Jesus' friend. This is amazing. This changes everything. You don't look like it's changing everything out there. (laughs) Sitting there thinking, well, this guy's off his rocker. Well, we're just trying to tell you what the Bible says. Uh, And then the evidence of this reality is this new relationship, of of this new relationship is a heart tuned to obedience to Jesus. Verse 14. As Jesus' friends who know comparatively everything. We know the who, the what, 
the where, the when, the why, the how, and what will be of redemption. Isn't that amazing? You know it all, comparatively. You know, I think some of us think, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to meet Elijah, and I'm going to go, whoa, man, you know everything. You're amazing. Elijah's going to go, whoa, you know everything. <laughs> Why didn't you live up? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that could be the stinger right there, right? That's where we need to work, isn't it? Why didn't you love sacrificially? Why were you worried so much that your spouse towed the line? And had no concern of the fact that you just flat out need to tow your own line. Yeah, it stings. I mean, Elijah's going to be like that. Um, so we know everything. Uh, we know how redemption for all humanity was secured, who secured it. We have a name. His name is Jesus. 500 witnesses to his resurrection. We know that he's going to bring everything back under his authority. This knowledge means everything. It means if you possess it in a manner that leads to self-sacrificing love, you are a friend of Jesus. This knowledge is the engine that makes loving one another in a self-sacrificing way possible. To know all that we know in Christ and to fail to love in a progressively growing way as Jesus has commanded means that we truly know nothing. To have the data points is not enough, my friend. You've got to apply the data points. And if you're not applying, don't claim to be Jesus' friend. Amen. Whatever knowledge we may claim at that point to possess, maybe knowledge, but it is not the kind of knowledge that Jesus gives in salvation. That knowledge grips my life and propels my will to change. So assurance operates in the setting of one another and among very knowledgeable friends. It's directed to our will. And finally this morning, assurance in Jesus is absent pursues an ultimate pattern. And here's where it just really takes on a whole new level. Because Jesus says this. What is the pattern? Just as I have loved you. This becomes the foundation of this new dispensation. We have new criteria. See, no other believer before this dispensation could love like Jesus loved because they'd never seen him. They didn't know his name. They didn't know how he was going to do all this stuff. So they had to love as what? Just as the law told them to love. All right, so I don't build a parapet on my rooftop. And I guess I'm not supposed to boil a kid in its mother's milk. And... I guess I've got to go to the central altar if I'm going to pray. Jesus is completely, Jesus, the historic man, the man who walked the dusty streets of Galilee. This man has changed everything. And he commands us to love as he himself loved. This is the greatest act of human love. He, he then quotes the, the wonderful axiom, greater love has no one than this, that a man... Uh, that, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus obviously did this infinitely and eternally. The greatest act of human love is to die for a friend. It's great in quantity. There's nothing left to give. It's great in quality. It is a complete and absolute disregard of any self-interest. This is exactly how Jesus loved us, only he did it uh, all of this infinitely and eternally, knowing full well every single detail 
And every potential response to that love that would come, he knew it all. He comprehended it all. And yet he still died for you. So that he could tell you everything and make you his friend. So that you could love in a self-sacrificing way. It's amazing. How did he do it? Well, we're told in John chapter 10, in John chapter 14, in John chapter 15, as a response in obedience to the will of the Father. Just like he's asking you to do it. His cross work was in response to the will of the Father. Remember Jesus says he's bleeding drops of blood in Gethsemane. He says, Lord, get me out of this. Well, that's probably debated. The point I'm simply trying to make is he said, not my will, but your will be done. Did Jesus get his prayer answered? Absolutely. God's will was done. Jesus went to the cross. So he did it in obedience. As a function of his will, you weren't particularly attractive and beautiful, and neither am I. Humanity is not. Why did he do it? Well, he longed for us to be fruitful with fruit that would remain for all eternity. His desires were taken out of this temporal existence and elevated to all eternity. There's a good help when you go to love somebody that's not lovely. Do it with eternal values in view rather than with temporal values in view. Why did he do it? He longed for you to be fruitful with fruit that would remain uh, uh, for all eternity. I'm just hearing Ephesians 5 with husbands and wives. This is the foundation of it. His desires were taken out of the temporal, elevated into eternity. We mentioned that. So that our prayers would not be hindered or would be answered. This kind of rigorous love grows us and shapes us to think, feel, and act like Jesus. And in so doing, our prayers take on the values of Jesus. And God the Father always hears and answers Jesus' prayers. Always. But you will never know that level of value and intimacy and understanding until you get busy about loving one another. As an act of your will. So what are the implications of this kind of love? Well, number one, the opposite of love is not hate. What's the opposite of love? Selfish. Ness. Mark it down. The other implication is one another is the beneficiary of love. It is not the source or referent in love. You know, we often confuse those two, don't we? Oh, I'll love you if you, the beneficiary, also become the referent and the source. Stop that. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm, at, I'm calling you to a supernatural reality. You no longer look at the one another as a source. You're looking at it as simply the beneficiary. The source and referent is Jesus. And the third implication is there's a single path to take when confused in love. You know, uh, we can write all kinds of books about all kinds of creative ways to reignite if we're talking marriage or relationships in a local church but there's simply a single path to take when we're confused and that's to love just as Jesus commands us to love 
This will always benefit a relationship regardless of the response. Can you say amen to that? If you're just like Jesus in whatever relationship you have, don't you think that'll benefit the objects of your love regardless of how they respond? I think they will. I think it will. So assurance in Jesus' absence is a critical commodity in the church age. You've got to find it somewhere. It's not in healings, big pow things, no. It's in loving one another. In Memorial Day, we're surrounded with the reality of, the, of an act of no greater love. We stand in awe and learn so much from the examples of no greater love. Our assurance and pride in America is renewed and strengthened. In an infinite, eternal way, Jesus has demonstrated this no greater love. We must learn to love in the same way. Full assurance that we are citizens of heaven is directed to our will, exercised in the setting of one another and friends who know everything about what Jesus is doing. And it follows the pattern that Jesus himself set. May Jesus help us as we die to self and live in love. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Encourage